The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. If I told him a completed portrait of Picasso, if I told him, would he like it? Would he like it if I told him? Would he like it? Would Napoleon? Would Napoleon? Would? Would he like it? If Napoleon, if I told him, if I told him, if Napoleon, would he like it if I told him, if I told him, if Napoleon? Would he like it if Napoleon, if Napoleon, Hello. Told him? Gertrude Stein would have been an important figure in the history of literature had she never written a word. But she did write words, lots of them, and they've given her an uneasy position in the canon of English literature. Avant-garde pioneer, minor talent, literary charlatan, or underappreciated genius. Exactly or as kings. Shutters shut and open, so do queens. Shutters shut and shutters, and so shutters shut and shutters. We're looking at the life and works of the fascinating Gertrude Stein today on the history of literature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm Jack Wilson. (laughs) She's still going. Now actively repeat it all. Now actively repeat it all. Now actively repeat it all. Let's turn down Ms. Stein for now. (laughs) I'm Jack Wilson, your literary host and your friend, hopefully. Can I aspire to be friends with people I haven't met in person? I'd like to think so, and I hope you do as well. I have some real friends, and I have some... Some real people who have been sending me real emails. Let's read a few. Here's a pair of emails that came in very close to one another. First one starts out, Hiya. I enjoyed the Carver episode, particularly because I have not read him. I need to now. I'm so intrigued, especially about his writing style. I am just now coming into understanding my own style and voice, kind of late. But then again, I'm still alive and we keep on pressing forward. (laughs) Yes, we do. Email continues, I love stories about people that didn't do notable things until after 50. Not that a simple life is a bad thing, but we all like to imagine leaving something behind. You said not to read his poetry first, but as I am a bit rebellious and also a poet, you know damned well I'll go there first. (laughs) So, I have a question. Forgive me. Ha ha. I just have to ask, are you... Reince Priebus. I, I apologize if you spewed your coffee or fell into a laughing fit, but I did have to ask. Don't feel any obligation to answer. I feel better just having asked it. Happy New Year to you and yours. <laughs> Reince Priebus. For those of you who don't know, if you're lucky enough not to be living in America... Reince Priebus is a former White House chief of staff. I, I just honestly did not know how to respond until I got this email. Dear Mr. Wilson, I have listened to the history of literature for over a year now, and I truly love it. I am just a baby literature enthusiast, a whole 20 years old, and just now reading treasures like Withering Heights and Lolita and A Farewell to Arms. I love your podcast and learning the stories behind the books I read. But I mostly wanted to write to you to amuse you. I made a wonderful online friend who happens to sound exactly like you. The similarity in your voices is uncanny. 
I compare your voices often and find no differences. You both say kind of cringy things very endearingly. Also, you two laugh and chuckle exactly alike. Besides his voice sounding like yours, his master's is English lit and he is very knowledgeable. He claims he is an editor, but I have to wonder, brace yourself, if he is living a double life as the host of my favorite podcast. I've asked him and he says to keep tuning in. To your benefit, this has made me a more faithful listener. As you can imagine, this ridiculousness has become a running joke slash debate. I have not met either of you physically and can never know for certain whether or not I am being hoodwinked. I hope you are amused, unafraid, and have a wonderful Sunday evening. Sincerely, Gabriella. Now, (laughs) poor Gabriella, uncertain if she is being hoodwinked. Well, I helped her out in that sense, I guess. I knew exactly how to respond. Combining these two emails. Dear Gabriella, I wrote, I'm afraid I'm not your online friend. But by any chance, is your online friend's name Reince Priebus? <laughs> I suppose I should be flattered. Reince Priebus, after all, is a, a fine public servant. He worked with uh, several colleagues. Let's hear what his colleagues said about him. Now, as you may recall... Anthony Scaramucci, a.k.a. The Mooch, also worked with Mr. Priebus. They overlapped briefly, and afterwards he wrote him a fine testimonial, which I can share with you. You know how these work, right? You always glow a little bit about your former colleagues. You put on a little shine, give it a little extra oomph when you're writing about them on LinkedIn or recommending a letter of recommendation or you're you're helping them get their next job or whatever, you say, so-and-so is amazing, she's highly competent and was a pleasure to work with. You always want to be a little enthusiastic, right? And so, take this with a grain of salt. It might be a bit of puffery here, as Mr. Scaramucci praises his former colleague, Reins Priebus, to the skies. Let me get the quote here. Ah, yes, here it is. Quote, they'll all be fired by me. Scaramucci said, I fired one guy the other day. I have three to four people I'll fire tomorrow. I'll get to the person who leaked that to you. Reince Priebus. If you want to leak something, he'll be asked to resign very shortly. He added, Reince is a fucking paranoid schizophrenic. A paranoiac. End quote. <laughs> Yikes! That's puffery for you in the in the den of vipers. Well, to my listeners, I could say I have many flaws, but I do not think I am a paranoiac. And I'm not Reince Priebus. What makes you think, dear listener, that Reince Priebus has any interest in literature at all? <laughs> what a secret life that would be on his part, putting out this podcast. Anyway, listener, as I said, I'm not paranoiac, except there does always seem to be someone knocking at my door. There. You see? Did you hear that? Oh. Someone's here. Hello. This is Edgar Allan Poe. Hello, Edgar. How are you? That sound you hear. Bricks. Bricks. 
bricks being placed one by one in a wall not six inches from my person. Bricks set by my enemy, Fortunato. I am to be entombed, it seems. A pity, really. I have so much more to give. If only my saviour, that noble whelp Jack Wilson, would come to my rescue. He's outside of Fortunato's castle, attempting to bribe the footman, but I fear he lacks sufficient funds. <sighs> oh, won't you help him, you hard-hearted book lover? Won't you help him and me? <laughs> That's the best. And me? You see? Listener, why wouldn't I be paranoid? I work in a studio with people being entombed as we speak. I could be next. If Fortunato has his way, maybe he'll go for the noble whelp. But you can help. Sign up for our Patreon account at patreon.com slash literature and help keep this show afloat and not bricked up by any of our enemies. This week, we're thanking our new patrons, Elizabeth, Rosa, and Andreas, who have signed up to donate a recurring monthly donation through our Patreon account, which you can do with PayPal or a credit card. That's patreon.com slash literature. And we would like to thank purchasers of virtual coffees, another way you can support the show, by buying me a coffee, just as you would for a friend at a coffee house in Vienna, a tea room in Beijing, or a Dunkin' Donuts. On our way to building a skyscraper in midtown Manhattan, I'll put a butter sandwich in your lunch pail, just as my grandfather used to do back when he worked at the creamery. This week, we're thanking our coffee buyers, Joshua. Mike, Arwind, Ronnie, and Sean. Many thanks for helping to support the arts in general and this podcast in particular. I truly appreciate it. Last email, and then we'll get to Gertrude Stein. Subject, Raymond Carver. Jack, after a particularly shitty week last week, you have no idea how much it meant to me to wake up to the Raymond Carver episode on Sunday. From a former lit major, thank you so much for such great episodes. Please keep them coming. Heart emoji. P.S. My Carver reading, my car, sorry, my Carver reading setting is the kitchen table. Single light above, rest of the house dark. Bourbon with one rock clinking. And every so often, a slight drip in the sink. Best, Dana. Oh, that is perfect, Dana. You nailed it. Bourbon with one rock clinking is such a nice phrase. That one, that image really haunts me. There's something menacing in there. It's perfect. Single light above is just right, as is the drip in the sink. I've read Raymond Carver and many other works in settings just such as that, with curtains pulled and the outside dark and lonely, away, trying to get away, trying to concentrate one's mind on the words on the page. Thank you for the email, Dana. Gertrude Stein, after the... Oh, hey, this is a treat. The music here, the musical interlude, is from listener Ronnie, who listens to the show while painting, way out there in New Zealand. Ronnie is also in a band, 
and he's kindly allowed me to share the music from one of their previous albums with you. They're working on a new album. This is from their previous album. If you want to check out more, you can find it at showmewhereithurts.bandcamp.com. This is from the album Show Me Where It Hurts, and it's called When You're Down, My Dear. Thank you, listener Ronnie. That's showmewhereithurts.bandcamp.com. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, so what do we make of Gertrude Stein? I mentioned at the start of the show that she would be an essential figure in the history of literature, even if she'd never written a word. So let's talk about that first, her biography in general, and the role she played from her Parisian salon in the first half of the 20th century. There's some controversy there, but it's also mainly an incredible story. She was an incredible person and lived an amazing life. And we will also tackle her writing and see what we make of it today. And there, the controversy, which started when she first started publishing, still abounds today. Let me preview the controversy for you, even before we get to her life, because I want you to have some context for why the biographical details are interesting, why they inform her role as a writer, how she was viewed as a writer. An early reader and fan, Mabel Dodge, wrote, quote, In Gertrude Stein's writing, every word lives, 
And apart from concept, it is so exquisitely rhythmical and cadenced that if we read it aloud and receive it as pure sound, it is like a kind of sensuous music. Just as one may stop for, for once in a way before a canvas of Picasso and, letting one's reason sleep for an instant, may exclaim, It is a fine pattern. So, listening to Gertrude Stein's words and forgetting to try to understand what they mean, one submits to their gradual charm. End quote. You might say that that's the beauty of Gertrude Stein's work, or the importance of it, depending on your point of view, that it breaks down words, it breaks down the meaning of language, forces us to hear words as pure sound. Once it breaks us down like that, gets us in a different mode of listening, it sneaks up on us, comes through with some definition, some meaning. Here's writer Sherwood Anderson in 1922. Quote, For me, the work of Gertrude Stein consists in a rebuilding, an entirely new recasting of life in the city of words. Here is one artist who has been able to accept ridicule, who has even foregone the privilege of writing the great American novel, uplifting our English-speaking stage, and wearing the bays of the great poets to go live among the little housekeeping words, the swaggering, bullying, street-corner words, the honest, working, money-saving words, and all the other forgotten and neglected citizens of this sacred and half-forgotten city. End quote. On the other hand, there were critics, readers like James Thurber, who was less impressed. Quote, Anyone who reads at all diversely during these bizarre 1920s cannot escape the conclusion that a number of crazy men and women are writing stuff which remarkably passes for important composition among certain persons who should know better. Stuart P. Sherman, however, refused to be numbered among those who stand in awe and admiration of one of the most eminent of the idiots, Gertrude Stein. He reviews her geography and plays in the August 11th issue of the Literary Review of the New York Evening Post and arrives at the conviction that it is a marvelous and painstaking achievement in setting down approximately 80,000 words, which mean nothing at all. End quote. Stein herself said, quote, Think of the Bible and Homer, think of Shakespeare, and think of me. End quote. That's pretty, that's pretty large on her part. How did this happen? How did she become such a polarizing figure? Where did she begin? Stein was born in 1874 in Allegheny City, Pennsylvania, a town that has since been absorbed into Pittsburgh. Her parents were middle-class and Jewish, Daniel and Amelia Stein, who spoke both German and English in their childhood home, in Stein's childhood home. Her father was in real estate, was a successful businessman. As a young girl, she traveled to Vienna and France. They spent several years there before her family eventually settled in Oakland, California, where her father was the director of the company that ran the streetcar lines in San Francisco. They were privately owned back then. The Steins lived on a big property, and Stein spent her days reading like crazy Shakespeare, Wordsworth, and big, broad novelists like Sir Walter Scott and Tobias Smollett and Henry Fielding. Stein later memorialized Oakland with her phrase, There is no there there, which is so pithy and devastating 
that the defenders of Oakland insist that she didn't exactly mean it. How does one how does one dispute that? Well, with Stein, it's fairly easy because when she wrote, her meaning was often slippery because of her syntax and her artistic style. Here's the quote. She took us to see her granddaughter who was teaching in the Dominican convent in San Rafael. We went across the bay on a ferry that had not changed, but Goat Island might just as well not have been there. Anyway, what was the use of my having come from Oakland? It was not natural to have come from there. Yes, write about it if I like, or anything if I like, but not there. There is no there there. But not there. There is no there there. Ah, 13th Avenue was the same. It was shabby and overgrown. Not, of course, the house. The house, the big house, and the big garden, and the eucalyptus trees, and the rose hedge. Naturally, were not there any longer existing. What was the use it is a funny thing about addresses where you live. When you live there, you know it so well that it is like an identity, a thing that is so much a thing that it could not ever be any other thing. And then you live somewhere else. And years later, the address that was so much an address that it was like your name and you said it as if it was not an address, but something that was living. And then years after, you do not know what the address was. And when you say it is not a name anymore, but something you cannot remember. That is what makes your identity not a thing that exists, but something you do or do not remember. End quote. That gives you a taste of what her writing was like, but it also gives you a sense of her nomadic life, her views on identity, how it's created. She was both of her time and way, way ahead of her time when it came to identity. Let's continue a little bit with her background before we get to that. Stein's mother died when Stein was 14. Three years later, her father passed away. Her oldest brother took over the family business and sent Gertrude and her sister Bertha to live with family in Baltimore, back to the East Coast. Once there, she met a pair of women, Clarabelle and Etta Cohn, who held Saturday evening salons. It was a model that Stein would also follow and come to represent as a kind of type Years later, as she and her eventual life partner, a woman named Alice B. Toklas, ran a salon in Paris for decades, was the place to go on Saturday nights for artists and writers. But let's stick with the teenage Gertrude because her young career was fascinating. She's on the East Coast now in Baltimore from a well-off family that has exposed her to Europe and to a kind of European intellectual way of life and outlook even as they lived in Pittsburgh and Oakland. She then went to Radcliffe College, which was an annex of Harvard University, the women's school, the partner school. It's so hard to imagine what things were like for women, professional women, women of intellect in those days. Colleges and law schools and medical schools today, they're about 50-50 with women. And yes, there's bias and glass ceilings and unfair treatment, especially in the workforce. In the workplace, but when I look back at the to the true female pioneers, I tend to think of the era Hillary Clinton's era, that generation. I think of all the doors those women broke down, like Harriet Myers, a Republican friend of George Bush, who was the first female lawyer hired by her law firm. And I think, what would that be like? Imagine the courage that that would take to go in as the first woman they've ever hired as a lawyer. Or Madeleine Albright, the first female Secretary of State. Janet Reno, the first 
Attorney General of the United States. Well, Harriet Myers was born in 1945, Janet Reno in 1938, Madeleine Albright in 1937, Condoleezza Rice, the first woman to be National Security Advisor, was born in 1954. We can go back a little further. Sandra Day O'Connor seems like a previous generation to those women. The first woman on the Supreme Court, she was born in 1930. She went to Stanford Law School and could not get a job. Forty law firms refused even to interview her. So these women, the women I've mentioned, they all broke ground. They all faced critics. They all knocked down barriers. They all faced a society with bias about what they could do, who they could be. And they rose to the tops of their professions. And we are all now living in the world that they helped to formulate. Why does this matter for Stein? I want to give you some context for Gertrude Stein, who was born in 1874, 56 years before Sandra Day O'Connor was even born, 80 years before Condoleezza Rice was born. And here she went to Harvard, Radcliffe, where she took classes at Harvard Medical School and studied with William James, who was teaching there. Women did not get the right to vote in the United States until 1920, years after Stein was in college. Stein was 46 when that happened. And yet there she was in 1893, studying at Radcliffe, and she became a student of William James, of all people. Now that's a pioneer, right? That is an early succeeder. William James, for those who don't know, William James is the brother of Henry James, the novelist. And William James is one of the great unsung heroes of American letters. He was a genius and a great innovator in his own way. And he's credited with key insights and developments in both psychology and philosophy. He was also an astute critic of his younger brother, Henry's novels. <laughs> he was supportive. They were pals. The James brothers kind of stuck together, looked out for each other. But William grew increasingly frustrated by Henry's prose, as many readers have been frustrated since, I'm sure. After reading The Golden Bowl, one of the three great novels from Henry James's later period, William wrote, quote, Why don't you, just to please your brother, Sit down and write a new book with no twilight or mustiness in the plot, with great vigor and decisiveness in the action, no fencing in the dialogue, no psychological commentaries, and absolute straightness in the style. Publish it in my name. I will acknowledge it and give you half the proceeds. End quote. <laughs> in another letter, he just wailed. Quote, say it out for God's sake and have done with it. End quote. It's really hard to read Henry James's later works and not feel the same way as William, frankly. The funny thing is, William may have had some influence on Henry's loquaciousness and circumlocutory style, thanks to his own psychological research, which was leading us toward an understanding of what came to be known as the stream of consciousness. This was a William James specialty. Stream of consciousness... His concept of it affected literature, and this brings us right back to Gertrude Stein, but perhaps not in the way you might think. It wasn't just a literary influence on her writing. 
She was one of several writers in the early 20th century who was influenced by this view of human consciousness and eager to find ways to import it into literary fiction, along with Virginia Woolf and James Joyce, many others. But Stein is interesting because she was actually there with William James as he was working on it. She arrived just after he had developed the concept and he was still working it out figuring out what it meant. So she was his student, and William James encouraged her, and along with one of her fellow students, she conducted a series of experiments where they divided a person's attention into two separate activities that both require a person's intelligence. They used writing and speaking, and somehow this ended up producing what was called automatic writing, which went on to be tailored and adopted as a stream-of-consciousness style by writers and poets. But Stein herself always objected to the phrase automatic writing as it pertained to her own works, or actually of any other writers. She had a deeper view of what a writer did. Although for her, it was a valid method to pour words out on the page. She had no problem with that. She did not view that as being automatic. She later said, there can be automatic movements, but not automatic writing. Writing for the normal person is too complicated an activity to be indulged in automatically. But when she was at Radcliffe, she wrote an article about automatic writing. It was published in a psychological journal. William James thought his student, Gertrude Stein, was brilliant, and he encouraged her to enroll in medical school. She went to Johns Hopkins Medical School back in Baltimore. She could have had a great career in medicine and psychology, but she was completely bored by this school. She didn't really want to go. And she was immersed at this time in discovering her own identity. That occupied her time. She took long walks and attended the opera. She wrestled with the fact that her chosen profession was dominated by men, and she was not particularly welcomed. She didn't dress as other women did either. She was discovering her own sexuality and her attraction to women. She became involved in a love triangle of sorts after she became infatuated with a woman who was already in a relationship with another of Stein's female classmates. Around that time, as Stein was experiencing the heartbreak and boredom of school and her personal relationships, her brother left for London to pursue an art career and she jumped at the chance to follow. In 1903, she and her brother Leo moved to Paris together, discovered new paintings and painters. Stein's creative energies were focused on writing and literature as well as the visual arts, and she never looked back. For the next 40-some years, she was a fixture of Paris, the expatriate woman who lived with another woman and whose walls were full of Picasso's, and Matisse's and other modern paintings, Gauguin, Cezanne, Renoir. It's hard to convey just how ahead of their time they were. She and Leo, they liked Cezanne, but he was already well-regarded and too expensive to collect in a serious way. They bought a few of his paintings. They couldn't keep going, so they looked for the young, the unknown, the new and promising artist, the next Cezanne, which would be more affordable. And their taste was impeccable. They bought their first Matisse in 1905, when he was barely known. 
They bought Picasso early, too. And soon, some of these paintings became so famous, and they were so advanced and modern, that other artists kept coming over to the Steins' house to look at them. By the time Hemingway and Fitzgerald reached Paris in the 1920s, Stein was a well-established fixture of Paris, and going to see her in her paintings was like going to an event, to a gallery full of good conversation, and people would gaze at the paintings on the walls. Imagine what it would be like for a Hemingway, say, much younger than Stein, a whole generation younger, but Stein liked him. And at Stein's house, he could meet Picasso, Matisse, Fitzgerald, Sinclair Lewis, Ezra Pound, Sherwood Anderson, Thornton Wilder, and many others. They were all there. And at the center of it all was Stein with her personality, her confidence, her artistic judgment, her intelligence, her creativity, her willingness to be creative, to look for new ways to be creative, her views on art and writing. She would hold court there at her house. And she had been writing by then, too. Let's not forget that. Her early work, QED, was about the love affairs among Stein's female friends that I described earlier. That came out in 1903. She had another novel in 1904, and then Three Lives, which is probably the first book to really register in She wrote that in 1905 and 1906. Stein's style is moving towards something looser in Three Lives. Her prose becomes repetitive. She claimed that it was due to Cezanne's influence, referring to herself in the third person as she described how she was influenced by the painter, saying, quote, The stylistic method of Three Lives had been influenced by the Cezanne portrait under which she sat writing. The portrait of Madame Cezanne is one of the monumental examples of the artist's method, each exacting, carefully negotiated plane, from the suave reds of the armchair and the gray blues of the sitter's jacket to the vaguely figured wallpaper of the background, having been structured into existence, seeming to fix the subject for all eternity. So it was with Gertrude's repetitive sentences, each one building up, phrase by phrase, the substance of her characters. End quote. Her major work, which she compared with Proust's Remembrance of Things Past and Joyce's Ulysses, was written between 1902 and 1911. It's called The Making of Americans, and it was mostly unpublished until Hemingway urged Ford Maddox Ford to publish some excerpts from it in his journal, The Transatlantic Review. She also wrote Tender Buttons, a smaller work that many consider her best. This is another honest work. She talks about her personal relationships. So she was a writer. Stein was a writer and eager to see writing advance in new directions. She's using the painting of her day, the most modern, forward-looking painting, the works of genius, that she has the foresight to purchase and hang in her wall, hang on her walls. She's using that as inspiration to come up with a new literary style with a philosophy underlying it. Maybe all those romantics, all those Victorian novelists, all the handed down books that she was reading in her youth, Sir Walter Scott, novelists like that. 
Maybe they were tired. Maybe that was an old style. Maybe it didn't reflect the psychology of the day, the new developments. Maybe it wasn't modern. Maybe it wasn't the best way to get at identity. Maybe pros could do something different. Here's Hemingway describing what it was like to visit Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. Quote, My wife and I had called on Miss Stein, and she and the friend who lived with her had been very cordial and friendly, and we had loved the big studio with the great paintings. It was like one of the best rooms in the finest museum, except there was a big fireplace, and it was warm and comfortable, and they gave you good things to eat, and tea, and natural distilled liqueurs made from purple plums, yellow plums, or wild raspberries. Miss Stein was very big but not tall, and was heavily built like a peasant woman. She had beautiful eyes and a strong German-Jewish face that also could have been Frulano, and she reminded me of a northern Italian peasant woman with her clothes, her mobile face, and her lovely, thick, alive immigrant hair, which she wore put up in the same way she had probably worn it in college. She talked all the time, and at first it was about people and places. Her companion had a very pleasant voice, was small, very dark, with her hair cut like Joan of Arc, and had a very hooked nose. She was working on a piece of needlepoint when we first met them, and she worked on this and saw to the food and drink and talked to my wife. She made one conversation and listened to two and often interrupted the one she was not making. Afterwards, she explained to me that she always talked to the wives. The wives, my wife and I felt, were tolerated. But we liked Miss Stein and her friend, though the, although the friend was frightening. The paintings and the cakes and the eau de vie were truly wonderful. They seemed to like us too and treated us as though we were very good, well-mannered, and promising children, and I felt that they forgave us for being in love and being married. Time would fix that. And when my wife invited them to tea, they accepted. End quote. Hemingway credited Stein with inventing the phrase lost generation, which she applied to those born around 1900 as he was, the children who grew up and ended up in World War I. Hemingway used this phrase for the epigraph to his first novel, The Sun Also Rises. Hemingway and Stein also eventually had a falling out, as so many mentors and protégés did. And my theory is that this happened because no one could email or text each other back then. No one had Twitter. That's my theory. You couldn't resolve anything. It was too slow-moving. No one could just tweet out an apology or have things patched up by others because communication was so slow in reaching one another, depending on written publications, which may or may not make it, out for months. Slights turned into feuds, and turning a feud around was like trying to get two ocean liners to change course. Or maybe you subscribe to another theory. Maybe you think it's that creative people who are influenced by others always need to feud with their predecessors. And on the flip side, people who are mentors always need to reject their protégés at some point before they are cast aside themselves. We have a whole episode on this, Literary Feuds. You might want to check that out. Okay. There's one more work to discuss of Stein's. 
the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which Stein wrote in the voice of her longtime partner. It was published in 1933, and it became Stein's best-selling book. It is probably the most accessible of her works. It's a memoir. Toklas was from the West Coast, San Francisco and Seattle. She was roughly Stein's age, a few years younger. She moved to Paris in 1907 and met Stein almost immediately afterwards, the day after she got there to Paris. They spent the next 40 years together living in the same apartment and hosting the salon. Toklas lived in Stein's creative shadow. She took care of the cooking and paperwork. As we heard from Hemingway, she did needlepoint, but she was also a muse for Stein and an editor and a critic. She's a fascinating person herself, often overlooked. As you heard in the passage, Stein just called her, uh, sorry, Hemingway just called her Stein's friend. Stein used her as sort of a puppet in the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. I'm sure it was done with affection, but even so, it's a book that's all about Stein, really. James Merrill, the poet, wrote a very vivid description after visiting them, said that before meeting her, quote, one knew, this is about Toklas, quote, one knew about the tiny stature, the sandals, the mustache, the eyes, but he had not anticipated, quote, the enchantment of her speaking voice like a viola at dusk, end quote. People's voices, it's an underrated aspect of romantic relationships, isn't it? You can fall in love with a person's voice, or at least you can hear a voice and think, this must be something I need to tolerate in my ears. Maybe that was part of the attraction for Gertrude Stein. Everybody comments on Alice B. Toklas's voice. I checked to see if there was a recording we could listen to, and I couldn't find one. I, they, she was interviewed later in life, but I don't think it captures the magic of what it was like to hear her in her setting younger. The, the recording is not very good, and she's, her voice sounds a little aged, a little cracked. You can hear some of the timber of it, but it's maybe not the viola at dusk that Merrill's phrase has, and I'd rather let that live in our imagination. In the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, we get Stein writing about Stein through the fictional voice of Alice, and here's what she says after... (laughs) This will give you a taste of what Stein was up to with this. After describing leaving San Francisco because of the fire, that's what happened to Alice B. Toklas. Her family left San Francisco after the Great Fire, and eventually they arrived in Paris a year later. So, here she says... Mrs. Stein, and here the Mrs. Stein here is Gertrude's sister-in-law, the wife of her brother. Mrs. Stein, who had come to San Francisco, brought with her three little Matisse paintings, the first modern things to cross the Atlantic. I made her acquaintance at the time of general upset, and she showed them to me and also told me many stories of her life in Paris. Gradually, I told my father that perhaps I would leave San Francisco. He was not disturbed by this. After all, there was at that time a great deal of going and coming, and there were many friends of mine going. Within a year, I also had gone, and I had come to Paris. There I went to see Mrs. Stein, who had in the meantime returned to Paris, and there at her house I met Gertrude Stein. I was impressed by the coral brooch she wore and by her voice. I may say that only three times in my life have I met a genius, and each time a bell within me rang. 
and I was not mistaken. And I may say in each case it was before there was any general recognition of the quality of genius in them. The three geniuses of whom I wish to speak are Gertrude Stein, Pablo Picasso, and Alfred Whitehead. I have met many important people. I have met several great people, but I have only known three first-class geniuses, and in each case, on sight, within me, something rang. In no one of the three cases have I been mistaken. In this way, my new full life began. <laughs> That's Stein writing about Alice B. Toklas's experience meeting three geniuses and a little bell rang and she was not mistaken. And Stein, <laughs> remember, this is a woman who's met James Joyce and Ernest Hemingway, Ford, Maddox Ford. They're all, she knew lots of different people, but only three geniuses. And one of them was Gertrude Stein. <laughs> we should all have the confidence to write a book like this. Was that Alice's view or Gertrude's? Maybe. It was something Alice told Gertrude. You know, I met you and a little bell rang and felt the same way when I met Picasso and Alfred Whitehead and Stein was just dutifully transcribing what Alice would have wanted her to say. Or maybe it was Stein's idea, looking at Alice and thinking, how interesting that you've met me and two other first-class geniuses. In any case, I'm not sure it matters. I can remember reading this and just being hooked. I wanted to read it all. On the one hand, I could not believe the arrogance of Stein writing in Toklas's voice, saying that about herself. But there was so much about Gertrude Stein to love. She was so ballsy, if I can use that word. She did not seem all that lovable, necessarily. Her arrogance was so over the top, it was almost comic. But also, who could blame her? Who else saw Picasso and Matisse and recognized their genius? Who else could attract the greatest minds of multiple generations and have them over every Saturday night, draw a crowd like that for 40 years. Stein wasn't warm and fuzzy, necessarily, though it does seem that she could be very kind and pleasant. People enjoyed her company. It seemed like whenever she argued with someone, I ended up agreeing with the other person and not Stein. <laughs> and not Stein. I think she was probably a tough person to know. She seemed to develop opinions and hold grudges. On the other hand, she also... Seems way ahead of her time, and I appreciate that, that she was confidently going where no one, man or woman, had gone before. I can't say I ever really enjoyed her books, other than the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which I devoured in my literary history kind of way. For the rest of the books, give me difficulties if I try to read them straight through. I can dip in, try to see what Stein is up to, get a taste, try to get some pearls, there's pearls on the page. That's what it is. It's like jumping into an ocean where everything is strange and you can't really breathe. But you can emerge with some pearls once in a while. Here are a few gems that one would find in the works of Gertrude Stein. Quote, Everyone gets so much common information all day long that they lose their common sense. Another one. Let me listen to myself and not to them. Here's one. What is the answer? She asked, and when no answer came, she laughed and said, Then what is the question? Remarks are not literature. 
Then this one. It takes a lot of time to be a genius. You have to sit around so much doing nothing. Really doing nothing. And of course, we come to what is probably the most famous Gertrude Stein phrase. Just ahead of there is no there there is a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. There's so much in this phrase. You could compare it with Shakespeare, where a rose would either be an elaborate metaphor or his lines, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. She's saying something much more direct, even profound about the nature of roses, the nature of reality, the nature of language. A rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. It's like a such a simple phrase with such a kaleidoscopic set of meanings. It's a beautiful response to romanticism. It encapsulates modernity. It's a useful phrase. We might say we know how good it is by the obvious jealousy that Hemingway had for it, for this phrase. <laughs> you know he wanted to write this. He wished he had written it. He repeated it again and again in different parodies or or references to it. He's trying to top it, you can tell. And when he can't top it, he tries to undermine it. But he can't. Here's some examples. He was... One time he wrote, A stone is a stein is a rock is a boulder is a pebble. Here's a sentence in For Whom the Bell Tolls. 1940, he writes, a rose is a rose is an onion. He's, he's, he's trying to make it his own, just as he did with Fitzgerald. Tries to put himself in the position of being the one who undermines the purported genius that he's a little smarter. A rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. Oh, you think that's profound? How about this? A rose is a rose is an onion. He's mocking, but he's also trying to to beat it. And then, after his falling out with Stein, he wrote, a bitch is a bitch is a bitch is a bitch. Hemingway is such a striver and so pathetic sometimes. So transparently pathetic. But let's get back to Stein. For all of its her writing's strangeness and all its occasional wild beauty and all of its baffling moments, her writing is strewn with the kind of insight that we see in a rose as a rose as a rose as a rose. These pearls, you know there's an intelligence there even when the syntax is a little odd. Sometimes seems like the oddity helps drive home the point. Here's a sentence I love. Americans are very friendly and very suspicious. That is what Americans are, and that is what always upsets the foreigner who deals with them. They are so friendly, how can they be so suspicious? They are so suspicious, how can they be so friendly? But they just are. The commas fall out of the second half of that sentence, which gives it a kind of forward momentum, which for me, I see in there, it's the thinking of the foreigner, the darting thinking, as the mind tries to reconcile the paradox. And finally, the conclusion, which is Stein's conclusion, breaking through over the din of the inner life of the thinking mind, trying to reconcile the paradox. 
Stein's conclusion breaks through the din and silences it. And all of this is better for not having the commas. Makes it a little trickier to read because it's not familiar, but the unfamiliarity breaks us through what we might have expected. It's like a discordant note resolving a chord. Makes us think, wakes us up by not giving us the expected. We're, we're a little bit more alert, a little bit more open, a little challenged. I'll read it again. I'll tell you when the last comma is. I'll tell you all the commas. How about that? Americans are very friendly and very suspicious, comma. That is what Americans are, and that is what always upsets the foreigner, comma, who deals with them, comma. They are so friendly, how can they be so suspicious? They are so suspicious, how can they be so friendly? But they just are. Period. Now, sentences like that get us toward the stream of consciousness, and some of her writing is much more so. We heard a poem at the beginning, the poem about Picasso, which really was breaking down language. But this begs another question. I can say that Stein is an ocean with some hidden pearls worth retrieving, but I wouldn't say that about a masterpiece like Ulysses. I might say it about Finnegan's Wake. I wouldn't say it about Ulysses. I wouldn't say there's just a lot of writing in there and you can dig in and find a beautiful sentence. But does Stein get any credit for making Ulysses possible? Did her writing pave the way? She and Joyce had a fascinating relationship. They were like the poles of a magnet. Hemingway, Hemingway again, he had a great way of putting it. He said, Gertrude Stein did not want to talk about Anderson's works. Sherwood Anderson did not want to talk about Anderson's works any more than she would about Joyce. If you brought up Joyce twice, you would not be invited back. It was like mentioning one general favorably to another general. But did Stein influence Joyce? She thought so. She was earlier than he was, she pointed out. On the other hand, we have to recognize the difference in their style and their work. She wrote fast. She collapsed syntax. She exploded it, you might say. She removed the commas, kept the words darting around, mirroring the thoughts, which no doubt she was taking from her experiences with William James and the research that she was doing. Although she resisted the term automatic writing, she wrote what occurred to her in that order with repetition when that was when it came out that way. Joyce, on the other hand, might take hours on a single paragraph. The result looked similar, but the, the way they arrived at the result was very different. Is that better? Did Joyce, was it better to take hours in a single paragraph? It's hard not to think that it is. We tend to value people who take a lot of care, who know how they want things to sound and work very hard to make sure that it comes out that way. We tend to admire writers like Flaubert who agonize over the particular words and choose them very carefully for our benefit. On the other hand, what is stream of consciousness? If it's highly edited, maybe that's not inherently better, even if it's hard to argue that Joyce achieved a greatness that Stein never quite reached. Here's what Stein said. It's hard to argue with this, too. Stein notes, quote, Joyce is good. He is a good writer. People like him because he is incomprehensible and anybody can understand him. 
<laughs> but who came first, Gertrude Stein or James Joyce? Do not forget that my first great book, Three Lives, was published in 1908. That was long before Ulysses, but Joyce has done something. His influence, however, is local. Like Singh, another Irish writer, he has had his day, end quote. Well, I think she's wrong that his influence was local or that he had had his day. And I'm not even sure that Three Lives is, is a great book. I think that's disputable. There's greatness in it, let's say that. But she is correct that it was published in 1908, which was well before Ulysses. I don't know that Joyce needed her to develop the style that he developed or how much her style influenced him. William James was there before both of them, describing what stream of consciousness meant, and it seems that there was something in the air at the turn of the century that other writers were coming up with as well. Joyce and Stein weren't the only two, and let's also note that Joyce began writing a portrait of the artist, which has some stream of consciousness passages in it. You can detect it there. He started writing that in 1907, which would have been before he could have read Three Lives I think they were probably all developing it simultaneously and where they encountered one another's works. They drew from it. They saw the example. When you read Stein, you can see what you can do. You can put another tool in your tool belt. It's helpful to see how other writers have done it, not just because they came up with something like removing commas or, or adding words in a certain way or using repetition, but because you can see what kind of effect it has on you as a reader, and then you can import that into your own toolbox as a writer. We may need to devote an entire episode to Stream of Consciousness to get to the bottom of this if we're interested in tracing the innovations and the influences. Let's get back to Stein, and we're getting toward the end of her life now. One of the saddest parts of the story, actually there are two, I think, one is the saddest critic of all, her brother Leo, her comrade-in-arms, the start of her career, the avant-garde painting, the two of them made such an impact on the art world. Leo did not like her writing. In fact, he began to hate it. He insisted that it was not art. But she did, citing Cezanne, who she said taught her that it was not just the realism of the thing that mattered. Her earliest publishers, here's another sadness, her earliest publisher, she paid for her books to be published, and her earliest publishers apologized, wrote letters and said, something went wrong, the grammar's all messed up, but don't worry, we'll fix it. <laughs> she would have to write back and say, no, no, that was intentional. Don't fire the person that you think messed it all up. It was messed up when I sent it. Messed up. It shall stay. Except for me, messed up is genius. You'll learn later. The other sad thing, I think, is Stein appears to have been on the wrong side of history a few times. I don't think we have definitive conclusions on any of this, but she seems to have held some negative, discriminatory views of people, different groups of people. And there's a, been a lot of discussion about her ability to remain in France during World War II. Was she a collaborator with the Vichy government? What did she do to help others? Anything? She wrote an introduction in support of Pétain, head of the pro-Nazi Vichy regime. I don't know what to make of her politics. Most people call it 
confused at best. Some call the reconsideration of Gertrude Stein a necessary corrective, and others have called it a witch hunt. I think she probably deserves most of her critics as well as most of her defenders. So what do we make of all this? Can we read Stein today? What's worth reading if we do? Remember, the critics, <laughs> F.W. Dup, who described her work as gnomic, repetitive, illogical, sparsely punctuated, a scandal and a delight, lending itself equally to derisory parody, and fierce denunciation. (laughs) I like that when you say lending itself equally and you think one thing is going to be good and the other thing is going to be bad, right? Lending itself equally to scorn and admiration. But no, lends itself equally to (laughs) parody and denunciation. Sherwood Anderson whose rave review we read earlier elsewhere got at something we might consider in a private letter to his brother Carl, where he wrote, quote, As for Stein, I do not think her too important. I do think she had an important thing to do, not for the public, but for the artist who happens to work with words as his material. End quote. I kind of talked about this before myself. Sort of the safe way to look at Stein, isn't it? To say, well, even if she wasn't a genius, she paved the way for others. She broke down walls, and that's her importance. That's a safe thing to say. Even if it's not for the general public, it advanced art. It showed artists how far you can go, and maybe the risks of going too far. I don't know if that's... It's a safe thing to say. I don't know how much credit we give her for that. Would we say that about Picasso or Matisse? Didn't they show how far you can go without going too far? Without it merely being innovative? But works of genius that happen to be innovative? Reflecting their time? Would we say that about Joyce? Maybe Finnegan's Wake, not about Ulysses, I don't think. The author, Catherine Ann Porter, had another criticism. She said, quote, Wise or silly or nothing at all, down everything goes on the page with an air of everything being equal. Unimportant is itself important because it happened to her and she was writing about it. End quote. That is a difficult question. Maybe it's just drivel. Maybe she needed an editor. Maybe she should have took more time. Do authors need to know that they can be free to write drivel? And is that the end of our query? Stein and Joyce were up to the same thing, but Joyce was careful and polished and edited and and rejected certain things. He trimmed things down. It had to meet a certain standard. And Stein thought that whatever she happened to write was brilliant and maybe suspected, maybe suspected that readers wouldn't be able to tell the difference and she could just insist on her genius and that would carry the day. That's, oh boy, a lot of people hold that view. Edmund Wilson 
pointed out the difference with the problem with experimental works and the general public. He thought her great inspiration, Cezanne, actually led her down the wrong path because Cubist ideas applied to painting was not analogous to the written word. He thought her methodology, where she tried to look at Cezanne and Picasso, import that into her fiction, he thought that was flawed. He pointed out that visual arts, like painting and sculpture, do not work the same way as literature. Wilson said that literature was, quote, human speech, which is a tissue of ideas. Miss Stein no longer understands the conditions under which literary effects have to be produced. There is sometimes genuine music in the most baffling of her works, but there are rarely any communicated emotions. End quote. The effect, he said, was to turn her into a remote, elevated observer, a self-conceived... He called her a Buddha, a self-conceived Buddha registering impressions like some august seismograph. <laughs> Not sure I agree with that, but it's such a beautiful phrase. An august seismograph. That's what Catherine Ann Porter was talking about, too. If it occurs to your mind, you get it down. If you are a genius, then it's worth recording on the page. Might not necessarily be how we as readers want to take our genius. Just an august seismograph. Maybe we want them to labor over their words a little more. In any case, I'm happy we have the Stein that we have. I'm happy we have the works that we have of hers. Just because she's hard to read or maybe not everything is as refined as we might like. As honed, it doesn't mean that swimming within the ocean of words there aren't some fish, truly wonderful fish, or those pearls I talked about earlier. I know writers who like Stein, not just for her transgressive devil-may-care rule-breaking, but for the emotion within. Contra Mr. Wilson, Mr. Edmund Wilson, no relation. H.G. Wells said that he found her writing strange, and then the strangeness disappeared, and he found that he was moved. As a fan of literature, I've read and enjoyed her autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. My wife has spent hours and hours immersed in the making of Americans for her scholarship. I read and enjoyed Three Lives and Tender Buttons, but I recently revisited Three Lives and did not think it held up very well. I may give Tender Buttons another try, although I fear the same might end up being true. Gertrude Stein, for me, is similar to Ezra Pound. I like the idea of her. I like the role she played. I love the idea that writers in Paris had a Gertrude Stein in their lives, someone who was devoted to literature, passionate, who had some strong opinions, and who had the insight and creative energy to see that the new style of painting was part of a new movement that broke down barriers. How could I not be fascinated by the woman that Picasso could not paint he painted her whole body, and he couldn't complete the face. Just couldn't do it. Finally, he gave up. And later, he finished the painting by painting a mask instead of her face. And then Stein loved the painting and said that no one had ever been able to capture her until that moment. There's something very powerful and attractive about what kind of a personality would say that something oddly compelling 
something endlessly fascinating. She was a, a deep person with many complicated levels. I'll let Susan Sontag have the last word. Sontag wrote in her notebooks, quote, Concerning the death of Gertrude Stein, she came out of a deep coma to ask her companion, Alice Toklas, Alice, Alice, what is the answer? Her companion replied, There is no answer. Gertrude Stein continued, Well then, what is the question? And fell back dead. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for Ms. Gertrude Stein. Such a fascinating life. And we only barely had time to scratch the surface. Next time, I hope, we'll do more. Here's one we left out. little tidbit. In 1931, a young writer and composer came to visit her in her Parisian salon, and she advised him to go to Tangiers. The writer took her advice and eventually became world famous. His name was Paul Bowles. Remember to visit us at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash literature. You can, no, facebook.com slash historyofliterature. You can buy us a coffee at historyofliterature.com slash shop or support us at patreon.com slash literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>